magnificent result of an unbroken chain of past events, each link sacred and unique. This is History Boulevard with John Oakley. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. All the humanity. The assault on the Branch Davidian Cup. We choose to go to the moon. Just watch me. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Martin Luther King has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. I got blood! I got blood in me! I got a whole lot of fight! I can't believe what's happening here. On this date in 1966, Lenny Bruce was found with a needle in his arm. Uh, he was heavily into the junk in the latter years, but passed, well, it was in his bathroom, lying naked on the floor at the age of 40. And as somebody said in his eulogy, uh, that truly was obscene because he was considered to be, you know, a risque comic, perhaps, a work blue uh but many said he was also obscene, and he took some raps for it, but he was also cr a crusader for free speech, which is a, an important development in uh, his career, as well as being an influence on people like Richard Pryor, George Carlin, Bill Hicks, and so on and so forth. For those who are unfamiliar, uh, I guess it's a cleaned-up version when he was on the Steve Allen Show. Steve Allen, back in the day, a late-night television comic, as you might know, or host, and uh, he was a big fan of Lenny Bruce. This is Lenny Bruce on that uh, program. Now, you are rather young uh, to have the title, The Most Amazing Musician of Our Times. Tell me, how old are you? Uh, 28 years old. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been in the business? 35 years. <laughs> Wait a moment. You are 28, and you've been in the business for 35 years? Well, that's why they call me amazing, baby. <laughs> Ain't that too much? I mean... <laughs> well, that's uh, that new style. You don't seem to be representative of the average musician to me. I'm not a musician, man. I play bongo. Oh, I see. Good sprit there. Yes. <laughs> Where do you get most of your inspiration? Uh, wheat germ. <laughs> you eat wheat germ? No, I smoke it. There you go. That was just a sample and uh, a cleaned-up version of Lenny Bruce, to be certain. But uh, his importance to comedy uh, can never be overstated. No one knows that better than our guest, Mark Breslin, stand-up comedian, as well as co-founder of Yuck Yucks, the comedy club chain across the country. Mark, it's always a pleasure to have you back here on The Oakley Show. How are things? Things are just peachy fine. Thank you. Listen, let me ask you about Lenny Bruce, because, you know, uh, they say Mount Rushmore has uh, four figures on it. If there's a comedy Mount Rushmore, is Lenny on it? Yeah, Lenny's on it. Lenny's definitely on it. But, you know, you have to um, you have to think about it this way. Um, just how funny is he? Like, is he important or is he funny? And um, if you go back and you play the records now, mm -hmm. um I'm not certain that you would find them all that funny. You would certainly find them historically important. And you would find some of the things, the techniques that he uses, uh, terrific and, and groundbreaking. But, you know, two nights ago I went to see Emo, and I laughed my, I laughed my ass off mm. at every joke. But I went back and I played some of those Lenny Bruce albums about five, six years ago. And frankly, I smiled, and I'm not sure I did much more than that. Well, all right. Uh, it could be over familiarity. Uh, I know what you're saying, because there was a lot of slogging through the material. You know, thank you, Masked Man, and uh, when he got ponderous with his legal problems and, you know, talking about the transcripts. Yeah, I'm, the not even, I'm not even talking about that, that period. I'm just talking about the, the albums that he made that were meant to be funny. And, um, you know, a lot of it was of historical interest. 
but I didn't find it necessarily uh, a thigh-slappingly funny. Well, I guess, you know, uh, some of it is informed by context, to be sure. I, you know, I'm with you uh, because I've got all the albums and, you know, Carnegie Hall. time you listen to them? Well, it's been a while. It's been a while since I've listened to a lot of these albums. I mean, you know, putting the platter together and all that. But no, the Palladium, for example, when he talks about his autobiographical trip to London, he's booked into the Palladium and he's playing it there and he has to follow, I guess, da- Dame Vera Lynn and, you know, <laughs> the crowd turns on him. <laughs> <laughs> then he gets bitter at the crowd. I mean, that's very relatable, and I thought that was funny. It still stands up for me. But sure, the- and and another and something that comes from that bit and a lot of his other bits is how important show business is as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Lenny's probably the first person to do that. He's probably the first comedian to to attack that. You know, and that's just it, because it's a personalized account. And I was watching Bill Burr the other night, and I thought Mm -hmm. to myself, you know, these comics who do the personalized stories from their own lives and the muck of their existence, as you like to call it, uh, you can't steal that material. It's just theirs and theirs alone. and I found that to be groundbreaking in the sense that, you know, other people were telling mother-in-law jokes or my, you know, my school was so tough and blah, blah, blah. Lenny was relating about his personal challenges and vicissitudes, wasn't well, it? Well, let's get even simpler and say that he's one of the first comedians I can think of to actually have opinions and express those opinions on stage. And as it happens, those opinions were considered, you know, heretical by so many people uh, that, uh, you know, it got him into horrible, horrible levels of trouble, um, especially his attacks on the church, especially his attacks on religion. You know, you can make fun of sex and people will turn their noses up, but they won't really do anything about it. But you start going after, <laughs> excuse me, you start going after religion and you're going to make a lot of very, very powerful enemies. Yeah. Uh, he said famously, every day people are straying away from the church and going back to God. Uh, another one, another one of my favorites. The only truly anonymous donor is the guy who knocks up your daughter. He had some great lines. He certainly had great lines. You know, um, I don't know if you've been watching Mrs. Maisel. Um, yeah, the marvelous. Yeah. The character Lenny Bruce is in there. Yes. Now, what I really love about what that show has done for him is it's taken away this stink of the, him being this pathetic character, this uh, martyr, uh, this pitiable guy, this drug addict, and it portrays him in a very, very um, charming light, which is supposedly what he was like. Um, you know, and people don't think, when you think of Lenny Bruce, you don't think immediately of somebody who's charming and witty and light and carefree. But he was a comic first before he was anything else. And I think the show really captures that. And Luke Kirby does a a magnificent job. What did you think of Dustin Hoffman's depiction of Lenny in the 74 movie, Lenny? Uh, You know, as an actor doing a comedian, it was an interesting study. Well, here's the thing. Um, I try to remember when I was first exposed to um, Lenny Bruce. And that movie came out in 1974. And 1974 was the year that I started getting really interested in comedy. I'd always liked comedy, but um, that's when I started working at Harbor Front and I started, um, you know, uh, dealing with all the different comics. 
and getting very interested in comedy, doing some comedy myself. And then I went to see Lenny in the theaters. And I kind of knew about Lenny Bruce. I think I'd, you know, listened to some records in somebody's basement when I was a teenager, but it didn't really register because I don't think he does comedy for teenagers. But I would, um, I, I watched this movie and I was so blown away. That's when I wanted to go and I wanted to know everything I could about Lenny Bruce. The thing that I went to first, because I guess this is my quote unquote literary background, was the book. And no one ever talks about the book. The book is fantastic. And the book holds up mm-hmm. in a way that even the records don't. Because um, it's not dependent on his voice. It's dependent on your voice as you read it. So, you know, let's, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, how, to, how to Talk Dirty and Influence People, which, right. of course, is a parody on um, How to Norm- Win Friends and in- Influence People by Norman Vincent Peale, who was, you know, a big uh, sort of self-help guru of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a wonderful book, and, you know, it deserves a reprinting, and people should be reading it. Again, with Mark oh, Breslin. I didn't answer your question. I didn't answer your question. Well, <laughs> I sort of lost track of what it was. It was just, we're extemporizing here. That was how well, the many... Question you, the question you asked was, what did I think of Dustin Hoffman in the role? Oh, yes. And, the role, and I, I didn't know enough about Lenny at the time to really be able to say, well, he nailed it or he didn't nail it. But he sure was good enough to get me interested in Lenny Bruce. And, and I've been interested in, in Lenny for, you know, the last 40 years. Mm. You know, I think I'll answer that question as well, having watched Dustin Hoffman and uh, seeing Lenny Bruce and, you know, having the albums and all the rest. And uh, he's an actor, but he ain't a comic. And there's a difference. And uh, it's just a very subtle one. But as good as Dustin Hoffman was in that role, and I think he scored some kind of an Academy Award nomination or maybe the prize itself. But it it wasn't like uh, a comedic maybe it's a sensibility or a matter of just uh, the essence or the timing, whatever, but uh, be that as it may, I got to dial it back to one of my original points here. You know, we're talking about Lenny Bruce being influential for the likes of Carlin and Pryor and uh, all these observational comics. Bill Hicks came later as well. He kicked open a lot of doors. Uh, Why, how do you see him uh, significant wise? Uh, Was he a crusader for free speech? Uh, What would Lenny represent beyond just, you know, the ha-has? I don't think Lenny wanted to be a crusader for free speech. I just think he wanted to be able to do his act, as yeah. he said to the judge. Um, <laughs> you know, there's that story about Carlin and, and Lenny Bruce. You, you probably know it, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. Our, our listeners don't. That the night that he got arrested, I guess in New York City, Carlin was a 19-year-old kid and, you know, aspiring comic sitting in the audience. And when they arrested Lenny... Um, Carlin went up to the cops and said, you're going to arrest Lenny? You arrest me, too. <laughs> and do you know this story? I do, I do. He wouldn't okay. give his uh, ID to the cops. That's right. So they, so they, they threw him in the, uh, uh, in the paddy wagon with, with, with his hero, with Lenny Bruce. And Lenny said, why are you here? He said, well, I'm, I'm standing up for free speech. He said, and Lenny said, kid, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here's another good one. Do you remember? Tell me if this is true or apocryphal. Lenny Bruce, uh, the night of the Kennedy assassination. Do you know the story? 
Uh, yeah, uh, it was the night after the Kennedy assassination. Oh, okay, yeah, and, and Von Meter had this uh, best-selling album of all time, which was The First Family, and it was a takeoff. He was an impersonator of the Kennedys and The First Family and Jackie Kennedy and had that whole ensemble and whatever. So the the day after the Kennedy assassination, Lenny Bruce, I think it was at Carnegie Hall or some major band. Carnegie venue. Hall, that's right. <laughs> right. And his opening line was... Poor Von Meter. Because <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. everybody's somber and bummed out and waiting to see when Lenny, and that's all he, he opened with, poor Von Meter. Uh, anyway, he was a classic. He broke the mold, and uh, I guess this is why he was significant or important. I mean, or were there other reasons? You're saying he didn't want to be a crusader for free speech. Uh, what he was, was it? That, he was inadvertently, I yeah. mean, but he didn't set out to do that. Right. Well, um, yeah, you know, through his trials. When I was living in, in California, um, I wanted to do a, um, uh, and I was working for Joan Rivers, we wanted to do a uh, Lenny Bruce tribute show. Mm. So I wound up getting in touch with his mother uh, and with his daughter, and I tried to put it together. Mm-hmm. But his mother wanted money. <laughs> um, she wanted money. I was broke all the time, I gathered. Um, we did pay everybody scale of six, $700, but she wanted way more than that. So I tried to organize some kind of a, uh, uh, a fundraiser for her at the comedy store. And somehow it just didn't happen. I think that it, it was like 1987. And that was a kind of there was kind of a trough in interest in, in Lenny Bruce at that time. Mm-hmm. I think if you tried to do it now, you'd get more response. Well, yeah, Sally Marr, didn't Kennison take her out on tour or actually uh, travel with her for a spell? Yeah, I heard that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh dear, the annals of stand-up comedy, and of course, uh, the legacy. You know, dials back to Lenny Bruce. You know, he was one of the originals uh, at the Hungry Eye and other clubs. The uh, what was it? The Purple Onion, I, th- I guess it was in San Francisco. Uh, but he was important insofar as uh, taking comedy in a direction that a lot of people uh, would not risk at the time in the late fifties. Kicked open the door. He faced obscenity trials because of it, and. Passed away on this date. Uh, he got into the heroin pretty seriously, and that killed him at the end. Well, of- wait a minute. Well, okay. Now, it was methamphetamines, you know, maybe. There's some, there's some controversy about how he actually died oh. and whether he put that needle in his arm or whether the Chicago cops planted it there. They gave that they broke into his place. They gave him a hot shot. And, um, you know, why were those pictures taken like that? The, the body was rearranged. That that was well known, um, so that he would look bad. Um, they didn't just want him dead; they wanted him discredited. Mm. And he, they were operating on the orders of the Catholic Church in Chicago, which of course was very powerful <laughs> at the time, right? So mm, this is, this, hey, I'm not being a conspiracist here. No, not but, at all. But I don't think any of this stuff is impossible. Mm. Um, yes, he was a hero. Yes, he was a heroin addict, but. Um, he evidently died from a hot shot. You know, it was a much more powerful dose than he was expecting. Where did he get that powerful dose? This, you know, this guy was 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 a maven of drugs and would know uh, where he was buying stuff. And uh, it, it, the whole thing didn't quite make sense. I like it. This is like a chapter of Hollywood Confidential. Uh, you know, we can put that in there with John Belushi and uh, Marilyn Monroe and a bunch of others, but uh, that's a great way to end the segment. Lenny Bruce died under uh, mysterious circumstances on this date in 1966. Found and with his spike. funeral was paid by who? Do you know? 
Oh, geez, yeah, I should, I should, I should. Phil Spector. No, yeah, Phil Spector. That's right, because he was uh, tight with Phil Spector, right at the yeah. time when Phil was still street legal. Phil, uh, yeah, <laughs> Phil should have paid for the for the funeral of Lana Clarkson, but we won't even go into that. No. <laughs> That'll be the next segment of Hollywood Confidential. We'll turn it into a recurring theme, Mark, when we talk to okay. you next. It's always good Sounds to good. get you on board. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. We'll see you soon. You got it. Mark Bresen, stand-up comic, as well as co-founder of Yuck Yucks, on the anniversary of the death of Lenny Bruce. Marilyn Monroe passed, or was found dead anyway, on this date in 1962. And uh, it was said that it was a suicide, according to the Los Angeles police, an overdose of sedative drugs. And the mode of death is, well, probable suicide is what they say. I know a lot of conspiracy theories have abounded over the years and uh, taken on added currency in the last number. But uh, nonetheless, it was not really about uh, the death and uh, the conspiratorial nature of fixing it to the Kennedys or anything like that. It was about the legacy of her work. The body of her work is pretty impressive in and of itself. And here to tell us all about that and give us more valued insight, Peter Howell has joined us, film critic, and you've known him for years with the Toronto Star. Peter, it's good to have you on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Hi, Johnny. Nice to talk to you. My pleasure. Uh, Marilyn Monroe on this date. Uh, by then, by by the time of her death in 1962, uh, was her star still in the ascendancy, or would you say, you know, at 36, uh, she had already done, well, it's hard to speculate, but the, the bulk of her best work? Well, your intro was for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes from 53, which yeah. is my, my personal favorite. I think for a lot of people, it's their favorite Marilyn Monroe movie, but um, by 62, she'd had a... She was starting to have films that weren't doing as well, like notably The Misfits, the Western with Clark Gable, Eli Wallach, and Montgomery Cliff. I mean, uh, it's actually a really great film, but um, I don't think the audience was ready for that kind of tough film with her. And, um, you know, so she was she was at a situation where you could see where the latter part of her career might not have done, may not have gone as well. When you mentioned The Misfits, uh, and that was Arthur Miller who wrote that, uh, she yeah. had been married to him for a short spell, right? Exactly. He wrote it. He wrote it specifically for her. Right, and it was directed by John Huston. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, it was her final film, and uh, or actually, it, it was yeah, it was Gable's final film it was all Clark Gable's final film. Yeah, uh, and he passed shortly thereafter as well. Did he not? Yes, he did. Yeah, he died of a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, actually, it wasn't her final film, but it was. It was. Um, it was. She. She died very soon after it. Right. And uh, as you said, a couple of uh, lesser reviewed films, The Prince and The Showgirl with Laurence Olivier. Uh, yep. That was all. Yeah, that was in the late 50s. So where would you say was the uh, peak performance? Because she also, you know, and, and The Misfits, I, I guess, you know, maybe she had an inkling to take on these heavier roles or Miller convinced her to or whatever the case may be. Uh, she wanted to change because she had some uh, significant milestones in terms of career changes like uh even when she went into comedy in a big big way uh with the seven year itch would you say yeah i mean i mean well comedy was always a part of her career but i mean you know even the year she did gentlemen prefer blondes in 53 she also did niagara sort of filmed in our neighborhood right and uh, that was like a, she plays like a femme fatale in that one so she was always trying to do both the comedies and the dramas um obviously the comedies i think were, were preferred by people and if you talk about her peak, I think you got to say like 53 to 59, like gentlemen prefer blondes. And then some like it hot in 59 for many people would be, you know, their favorite Marilyn Monroe movie. I, that's probably my number two. Uh, you know, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon. I mean, she, she, she had an amazing comic timing that went beyond just being a, an incredible bombshell. 
Yeah, that's an innate thing, I'm guessing, uh, because she didn't uh, really learn that anywhere. She studied with Lee Strasberg at the Actors Studio, yep. but that was in 55. Would that have been part of the, the learning curve there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean she, she was sort of famous for carrying around a book of uh, an autobiography or, or a biography of, uh, of uh, Abraham Lincoln. Like she was, she always wanted to better herself. And I, I think people maybe didn't always take that seriously. It seems almost comical to bring it up, but um, she was she was a very serious actress. You know, a lot of people don't know about this, but she wrote a piece for a magazine in '53. It was called "Wolves I Have Known," which is kind of like an early Me Too thing, and it's kind of shocking if you read it. She talks about all the all the the, the terrible things that guys would do to try to ensnare her sexually. Like, she was very aware of, of who she was as an actress and as a person. You know, quite, quite admirable that way. So um, she, she was constantly trying to better herself. You know, it's funny you mention that because uh, the on-screen portrayals, uh, you know, and even off-screen uh, in a lot of interviews and things, she played up the voluptuousness as well as the naivete, the ingenue role. Uh, so that was just a ruse, more or less. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a movie coming up with Anna Desarmas playing her in, in Joyce Carol Oates' adaptation, Blonde, which opens uh, next month um, on Netflix. And uh, there's, if you look at the trailer right now, you actually see her in her dressing room kind of conjuring the Marilyn mystique. Like she says, I need you to come now. Like she, she's totally aware of that thing. It, it, it almost looks like a horror movie. Hmm. Peter Howell's with us, Toronto Star movie critic, former president of the Toronto Film Critics Association, as well as current member of the Critics' Choice Association. And we're talking about Marilyn Monroe, who uh, was found dead in her bed in Los Angeles on this date in 1962. Uh, I mean, it's not uh, of the filmography, but why do you suppose, you know, uh, in, in some ways Elvis is the same way, uh, yep. the the whole profile and uh, brand of Marilyn Monroe has taken on uh, even greater currency, I guess, in her death. Uh, and even more uh, recently, you might say, and conspiracy theories attendant to that. Why would you say that would is has happened? Yeah, I think I think she's the great symbol of like innocence lost. You know, Elton John's "Candle in the Wind," which he originally wrote for her, mm -hmm. but then switched it to to Lady Die. It was the whole sense of um, somebody who was really special, very unique. That was suddenly taken from us. Now, age 36 is, uh, it's, I have a son who's 36, so it is pretty startling when you think about that, to, to be gone at that age. And yet, and she would, she'd be, what, she'd be like 96 now. Um, it, it's just, uh, it's incredible to think that, that her influence stays on and uh, she forever remains that symbol. And I saw this really amazing art show in, in Cleveland many years ago where they, they compared uh, both Elvis and, 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 um, and, and Marilyn in artwork together. And they talked about just how, how iconic they are around the world. Like, no matter where you go around the world, those two figures are just absolute icons. Well, she, the iconography extended with Andy Warhol, and, uh, you know, he dined yep. out on that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, and even insofar as her legacy continues until today, uh, do you find that a lot of contemporary actresses, especially if they're playing for the comedy roles, now I know there's different sensibilities and all, uh, do you think there's some inspiration they're deriving from Marilyn Monroe? Absolutely. I mean, any time you see a blonde actress, you know, you can't help but think of Marilyn Monroe. And even pop stars, you know, Madonna, you know, Michelle Williams, uh, Lady Gaga, Debbie Harry, even Rihanna, um, Lindsay Lohan, Scarlett Johansson. It seems like everybody wants to have a chance playing Marilyn Monroe. It's like the, it's like the great touchstone in terms of uh, some achievement. Well, and Kim Kardashian wore that Kim dress. Kardashian, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, that, that, that was for wearing a that was for wearing a dress for which Marilyn got a lot of uh, abuse for, but you know because it was considered to be very um, 
not exactly what, what she did. Well, you know the whole story behind there, the JFK happy birthday, Mr. President thing. It's, it's yeah. funny that uh, Kim Kardashian would get in trouble for wearing a very naughty dress. <laughs> right. And supposedly ruined it as well. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't know what that's. And, and of course, the happy birthday, Mr. President in Madison Square Garden. I heard Jackie went sort of sideways over that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think a lot of people did. Well, you, well, you have to watch it on YouTube. And uh, if you know the background, it, uh, it's uh, pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, uh, I mean, she was uh, in her ultimate sultriness. Now, back in the day, you know, these days, uh, everybody has brand management and uh, image consultants and so on and so forth. Was this then all just out of whole cloth that she had derived her own image and uh, and her presence in brand? I think to a large extent, but don't forget, she also was on the first cover of Playboy. So, um, you know, Hugh Hefner saw her as something as well, and, and, and it, was, it was like symbiotic. She helped make Playboy what it was in many ways, and, and Playboy helped advance her as well. So she, there were some lucky breaks. There were some, there's some, there's some twists of fate. It, it, it's it's one, of these, one of these people and careers in the world and in, in our lifetime that just seems to hit all the little buttons that created a true phenomenon. Yeah, and the marriage to Joe DiMaggio, even though it lasted eight months, yep. uh, you know, he was an icon too, and male virility, I guess American male virility, so it was sort of like the symbi- symbiotic relationship. I'm kind of yep. curious. Now, uh, I know that she started out as a model. Where was the breakthrough, though? She appeared in some early films, but really bit parts in the Asphalt Jungle, All About Eve. Uh, yep. Where would you say the big breakthrough came, Peter? You know, personally, for me, I'd say all about Eve. You know, that, that's, that's, that movie is like one of the all-time you know, Oscar greats like for winning you know, important Oscars. But she has a pretty small role, but she actually, she, she's amazing in that movie. If you watch that movie, you're up against you know, Betty Davis and, and people like that. And she's just, she plays a very minor role, but you, you, you just know it's Marilyn Monroe. You know? And, and it, it, it's incredible. That's 1950, when she's just sort of breaking in the movie. So... Um, that's definitely one I would watch if you're looking. If you want to add to your Marilyn Monroe films to watch uh, to sort of commemorate uh, this sad event, watch All About Eve. Just uh, beautiful, beautiful performance. Yeah, and the fact that uh, you know it's the repressive, button-down 1950s, you know, very puritanical time too in American history. Uh, would you say that because she radiated a certain sexuality and uh, sensuality, that too was? Uh, a part of you know the mystique and the breakthrough i mean that's why she became iconic yeah i think yeah, absolutely but also you know if you watch all about eve she's wearing white all through the movie or a lot of the key scenes everybody else is dressed in black so there's that kind of thing happening right there like she, 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 the combination of, of events around her and uh, you know costume and, and image consulting and everything else it just all it all came together to make quite a phenomenal presence right and the legacy of course uh, lives on yep Found dead in her uh, Los Angeles home back on this date in 1962. Peter Howell, I mean, uh, that stuff about the white dress, everybody else dressed in black. That's a, a, a little detail. That's great uh, observation. Only a film critic would uh, bring that to our attention. By the way, you're ramping up for TIFF? I certainly am. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I saw a bunch of movies in Cannes that uh, I'm excited about for TIFF, and uh, it's going to be a good year. Everybody back. Everybody's back. In and of itself, that spells a good year. Uh, amen to that. Really good to talk to you on this date and uh, reminisce about Marilyn Monroe. I appreciate it very much, Peter. All the best to you. All the best. Have a great weekend. And you. Toronto Star movie critic, former president of the Toronto Film Critics Association and current member of the Critics' Choice Association. That's Peter Howell. Marilyn Monroe. On this date, lives on in iconography. I can't. 
believe this story. Uh, it's too good to be true, but it is. And in fact, uh, we've got somebody who covered it. It's as we take our trip down History Boulevard. We like to do that on this program uh, on a daily basis. It was on this date in 2004 in the Windy City. The tour bus belonging to the Dave Matthews Band dumped an estimated 800 pounds of human waste from the bus's septic tank onto a passenger sightseeing boat in the Chicago River below. As I say, uh, she covered it. Angela Rosas uh, O'Toole is a senior editor for government and politics with the Chicago Public Media, WBEZ, but formerly a reporter for the Chicago Trib, where she reported on this incident. Angela, really appreciate your joining us this afternoon here on The Oakley Show. Thanks, John. It's good to be here. Well, listen, you covered this for the trip. So walk us through the key points and timeline, because I'd never heard of this incident. And it's just uh, almost too fantastical to be true. But tell us what happened. I hate to say it, but it was early in my career. And it's probably one of the most famous stories that you would never know that someone like me would write. Uh, it was about it was a Sunday afternoon. I remember an editor said uh, a tour, a tour boat just got dumped uh, with <laughs> Foul waste. Does anybody want the story? And I was a cub reporter, raised my hand, said, sure, I'll take it, took the call. And it was a, a colleague of ours was on the boat. That's how we found out about it. And he just says, you know, we were soaked. Uh, we, we, they were on a boat called the, it was the Chicago Architectural Foundation Tour, which is a well-known tour here. And they were passing under a bridge and all of a sudden they were just doused and, uh, <laughs> Uh, my, my colleague passed the phone around to some passengers who were with him, and they described the story to me, and they said, you know, at first it was stunned silence. They thought it was water. Then the smell hit them, and it was not water. <laughs> it was 800 so pounds they, of human waste. <laughs> it was. And nobody knew at the time that it was the Dave Matthews band, as you're correct. Um, they just knew it was gross. They headed back to shore, uh, got some change of clothes, got some refunds. And reported it to the city, and thankfully to me at the Chicago Tribune, wrote up a story that was published that afternoon. And by the next day, it was it was all the rage. Uh, they eventually tracked down the uh, Dave Matthews Band by early video recording back then. Uh, you know, street cameras that uh, recorded the bus um, passing over and dumping the waste on people below. Angela Rosas O'Toole is with us. She was a tri uh, reporter with the Chicago Tribune and reported on the story in 2004, August 8th, of course, today. Uh, so a date that lives in infamy in the annals of Chicago, <laughs> that the tour bus, the Dave Matthews tour bus, he had several tour buses, but this was one of them specifically for one of the members of the band. And it uh, dumped its septic tank, 800 pounds of human waste. I mean, ooh, if people have to eat sometime tonight, uh, you can sort of spoiler alert. Uh, how that got down to the boat below is interesting. It's to do with the bridge as it was constructed in Chicago, right? Yeah, that's right. There are just dozens of bridges over the Chicago River that wind its way through the city. And they are built so that they can rise uh, at the seasons when you want boats to come in and out. So there are grates in the middle of the um, bridge, and they're open air. And, <laughs> I mean, it's clear what came to be that he had timed it so that he would dump it, um, <laughs> thinking he's dumping just over the river, we guess. Um, but, you know, as one of the, one of the uh, passengers had told me at the time, if you wanted to time this, like in a movie, you couldn't have done a better job or a worse job 
of timing it as he did. You know, we, we're making light. He ended up facing fines. The, the poor Ben was dragged through the mud or other substances, if you will, for <laughs> years. And now every year around this time, you know, Chicagoans never forget. Well, this was interesting because originally the band denied any involvement, uh, but it was only some sleuthing that caught up with this particular bus driver because the, the band actually had in their tour five buses, did they not? That's right. They had five. This one belonged to the violinist, which is pretty <laughs> impressive. He got his own tour bus. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, the band the band did, you know, did their bandly thing and stood by their driver who denied it and told them, come check the come check the septic tank and everybody was denying it. The attorney general, which is our sort of state investigator got involved because there's pollution into the river, not to mention the hundred people on there. And within about a year, finally the driver admitted in court that he had indeed done this. They, once they played the videotape for him, that showed that it was clear that the bus, it was his bus crossing over the bridge at that time. It started hard to get away from it, from the truth at that point. And so it's not uh, common then to dump raw effluent into the Chicago River. I mean, that would have been, again, the law just on its own, right? Not anymore. Uh, go back 100 years, and it was pretty common for uh, waste to be dumped into the Chicago River. In fact, it's pretty smelly, pretty terrible, and it works its way into the lure of the Great Chicago Fire. In fact, that the river itself, uh, when the when the city was nearly destroyed, that the, ri- the river itself caught on fire because of the waste that was in the Chicago River. But today, no way. The you know Chicagoans are very proud of how beautiful and cleaned up the river is today. It's a, a, these, these sightseeing tours, um, you know, are up and down the river all day, and it's it's a much more beautiful river with lots of river walks and things like that. But yeah, absolutely not acceptable. Uh, you know, funny for us these days, not for those passengers, but it's uh, it's not a part of our our, our daily life anymore. Mm. Yeah, it's one thing, you know, maybe catch a bomb from a pigeon, you know, uh, it's just a single incident. But this was 800 pounds of human effluent or waste dumped onto a tour boat below the bridge through the grates. And uh, as bad as this was, I mean, there were some people who actually went to the hospital as a precautionary measure, didn't they? They did. I think maybe five people were taken to the hospital, you know, that there were children and infants on this uh, tour bus, elderly um, people with disabilities. So we do make light of it, but it's pretty terrible for those folks. Um, I think in the time that's, uh, you know, when they got the guilty plea a year later, the state prosecutors who were the county prosecutors who were on this said nobody was long-term, you know, receiving long-term damage. But um, I don't imagine they'll be back on those tours anytime soon. But damages were paid, weren't they? Yep, there were some lawsuits filed, um, folks, uh, and then the the band uh, gave money to the Friends of the Chicago River, I think it was. Um, they gave lots of public apologies. There was at least one private lawsuit that was filed. I have no idea what happened to it after that uh, some time ago. But um, And then people got their money back for their $25 tour back then. <laughs> I heard the Dave Matthews band cut a check for 300000 That might have been maybe for dry cleaning. <laughs> people in the boat. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I think that there was a large fine that they did end up paying to the state as well. That might be the one you're thinking of, for sure. Well, and the accounts that I've heard and read uh, had 
this waste in people's hair and uh, all in their clothes. It was just a debacle. Uh, but a, a date of infamy in the annals of Chicago, as much as you know, you've had certain other milestones, like you mentioned the big fire there and uh, Mrs. O'Leary's cow, <laughs> the river catch. This is this is one of the best, one for the ages. ages. And you were there as a cub reporter to cover it. Uh, still one of the highlights in your career, would you say, Angela? about a highlight i go with low light but sure it's definitely one of the most memorable you know if i can i do a dave Matt? i mean it changes the meaning of crash into me would you say john <laughs> i would i would uh well reported really uh, a pleasure to talk to you on this historic date uh thanks so much for spending some time with us angela thanks so much thanks for bringing it up you got it. Angela Rosas O'Toole, again, a former, uh, formerly a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. She reported on this event, on this date, 2004, in Chicago. Let's talk about the wall, the Berlin Wall. It was on this date in 1962. These Germans killed a guy, young man, trying to cross the Berlin Wall, which had been erected the previous year. They gunned him down. He was trying to escape. They left him to bleed to death, one of the ugliest incidents to take place, one of the ugliest symbols of the Cold War. And there was also a very real chance of nuclear annihilation. Nobody knows that better than our next guest, Sean Maloney, professor of history at the Royal Military College, specializing in Cold War and nuclear issues. Sean, good to have you back in the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. It's good to be back. Well, tell me, I mean, uh, the Cold War, you know, as I write uh, or recite this episode from 1962, I mean, as I say, this kind of epitomized the stakes during the Cold War. In a sense, you could lose your life for just trying to go to freedom. Absolutely. I mean, uh, fortunately, that era has closed on us. But how, how are we going to convey what was going on, the importance of Berlin, and the nature, how Berlin epitomized the Cold War to a new generation. It's a fascinating story. And it really starts with the closure of Berlin, the Berlin airlift after the Second World War, which people don't even get taught about. The idea that Germany, as we know it, is cut into two parts, and Berlin is cut into four parts, communist side and then the, the Western side, and that the younger people in East Germany have just had enough with the Orwellian nature of the regime that they start fleeing. So the DDR, the German government, East German government, supported by the Soviets, build uh, what they call the anti-fascist protection barrier, which is really turned inward to stop people from getting away. <laughs> Hard to believe, yeah. Uh, and nobody ever uh, successfully, I think, escaped into East Germany. Uh, there had been some turncoats, <laughs> too, as we know. But, uh, yeah, that tells you uh, where... Of course, uh, one side was on the right side of history and the other was not. But at the time, living through it, it was uh, really, there was nothing decisive uh, about who might prevail in this case, uh, the Eastern Bloc versus the Free West. The nuclear annihilation question during the time of the Cold War, uh, I mean, as a buff of history, uh, we know that we had the October Missile Crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62. How would you assess it, uh, scale of 1 to 10, 10 being like really, really serious, uh, the prospects of nuclear annihilation in the Cold War? Oh, it all, de it all depends, too, really. It depends what year we're talking and uh, uh, what the nuclear state of the nuclear forces were. I mean, people tend to focus on the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Caribbean Crisis as very close because they're counting on looking at the DEFCON system going too. Um, that was close, but in Berlin in 1961, it was equally close. I debate with my colleagues about this all the time, but there, there was then there were numerous other instances where 
nuclear forces were flourished, just like they are now over Ukraine. We just we see we see more of it now. But in terms of history, uh, people don't know. For example, the Soviet Union, China nearly went at it in 1968-69 with nuclear weapons. That people don't know about that one. That was really close. Um, and then, of course, you've got uh, 1973 over the uh, uh, problems in the Middle East. So, but I, we tend, end of view, the sort of various Berlin crises um, and the Cuban Missile Crisis or Caribbean Crisis as the the epitome of Cold War nuclear crises. Yeah. Right. Uh, forgetting as well that, uh, you know, Pakistan, India, both nuclear powers, and uh, they've got an unsettled frontier there. So that's a flashpoint. But you're mentioning Berlin here again. Uh, why was Berlin so integral? Uh, was it like ground zero, as it were, uh, in terms of symbolism, its location well, and everything? You're, you're bang on, John, because it's really important to understand Berlin and uh, West Berlin on numerous levels. The most important one is that it allows the the... the the east to see what the west looks like how it goes about living and how it's not subjected to the same sort of totalitarian tyranny that they are so as a symbol showing other people how how life should be lived it's huge second it's also an espionage center par excellence uh from there the 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 west can monitor what the other side's doing and that is a stabilizing influence so if the other side's going if warsaw pact's going to attack west germany they have to build up it's going to take time for them to do that. The espionage apparatus in West Berlin has the ability to had the ability to listen and see and hear that. So that that could have uh, provided a stabilizing influence as well. So that so has the espionage aspect of it. Um, and then um, the, as a pure symbol of what the West believes in, Berlin is it. And the other, it also, in that sense, the radio station, Raya, allows the East Germans and even the Poles to hear modern, up-to-date uh, music and, and newscasting, almost like the BBC in the Second World War. So, and then later on, TV. You might, people don't know about the TV wars. Like so, like the East, the West Germans developed a, a TV as a uh, as a mechanism to uh, influence the East Germans, and East Germans built up TV to do the same thing. But nobody watched it in the West, right? So on every level, Berlin is absolutely crucial, but it's most important is a symbol of what, what the West believes in, and that's the fundamental freedoms of uh, personal liberty. Yeah, you know, it's strange, but uh, there were other things that sort of surfaced in terms of undermining uh, the East Bloc or uh, Soviet totalitarianism, like the audio cassette, I'm told, uh, you know, a form of technology that was smuggled in and people would start getting uh, access to Western culture and music and so on and so forth. So the audio cassette, as much as we laugh at it now as an outmoded technology, played an integral role there. Tell me about Spycraft, though. I'm kind of curious, like Berlin, you're saying, was uh, sort of an epicenter of this. But it was assumed during the Cold War in a major Western countries, like everybody who worked in a Russian or a Soviet embassy was effectively a spy. True or false? It's true. Let me back up a second. You brought up a really, really important point about the cassette. The punk rock movement was massive. And it had played a significant role in undermining totalitarianism, particularly in East Germany. And at the Stasi Museum, they, they, would, they kept files on punks. And they had a categorization system. They photographed them like zoo animals to, to figure out their typology, the whole bit. <laughs> so the, ro the role of punk is really important here. And that, that gets overlooked a little too much. So you're, you're bang on in that front. Um, on the spy end of it, 
the, the, the proximity of, of, of having West Berlin right, right in the middle of East Germany. Okay. And the ability to see and hear everything. Like there was a huge signals intelligence station called Teufelsberg. It's still there in Sterilek, but it's built on a mountain and it has the ability to basically listen in on everything that can, uh, that it can reach. Um, human intelligence. You, you've seen grids of spies. You always trade your spies in Berlin at the bridge, right? Mm. Huge role there. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's absolutely crucial on, on that level. Definitely. And dramatic. Thousand. I mean, there's nothing more dramatic. If your audience can get hold of the movie Funeral in Berlin, it's filmed on location in 1964 or 65. You can get the, the zeitgeist and the vibe right from that film. It's excellent. Spies being traded, like walking across Checkpoint Charlie, you know, one on one side, one on the other, and they're coordinated yeah. so that, you know, uh, not, no two are on one side at any given moment. That really it's just, Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, and uh, a lot of people would not believe that, think it's all over-dramatized for television or the movies, but uh, it was real-time back in the... Uh, I've, talked to, I've talked to people that have done it. I was I was there at the very end like, as everything was being torn down, but mm. I, I interviewed people that were part of these things, and uh, there's nothing more dramatic at the, during the Cold War with the prisoner or, uh, espionage exchanges and... And, and of course, the uh, Berlin could be easily West Berlin could be cut off by the by the communist side, right? There's only three highways in there, and there's, there's a railway in, but then there's the airfields. If they want to cut it off, I mean, Khrushchev said, "If I want to hear the West scream, I squeeze its balls." And he's referring to Berlin, West Berlin, right? Mm, mm. Oh, there were a whole series of contingency plans. Canada was part of this as well um, to have varying levels of uh, military force to keep the routes open under certain conditions. And there's a whole bunch of escalatory options involving nuclear weapons that that the, that the whole thing could have uh, it could have gone all the way, of course, if the other side had pushed too hard. So, yeah. a chilling time. So many good aspects uh, to unpack on this one. I mean, Berlin airlift and how that uh, sort of you know freed uh, the city from the embargo by the Soviets, and uh, but the punk rock movement was so subversive to the extent that they oh, actually oh. Uh, had. An influence on uh, how East Germans, you know, perceive the West. That's it. Maybe that's why we see even Pussy Riot, the subversive nation of this punk band oh, yeah. in Russia now, and uh, Vladimir Putin hates them anyway. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's music of subversion again. In the it's in the Stasi Museum. Stasi is their uh, state security forces. Their their Gestapo, right? Mm-hmm. And they they were Adam, they were terrified of the of the punks. They knew the punks were bad news, and they went out of their way to really mess with them. <laughs> All right. Uh, great account. Uh, and the Berlin Wall, you know, they still have uh, sort of the tracings of the wall through Berlin, uh, where you can see where it once stood. It's uh, really, uh, I think it's an arresting site for sure. Sean Maloney, professor of history at the Royal Military College, specializing in Cold War and nuclear issues. Uh, really fine covering that beat this afternoon with you, Sean. We'll talk down the road. John, one point before we go. Hmm. Peter Defector, who died on that day, didn't think that freedom was a slogan or a joke, and he died trying to attain it. Let's not forget him. That was a young man trying to cross over into West Berlin, and he was shot to death. Uh, these German soldiers, they gunned him down and let him bleed out right there in uh, the space between the two uh, polarities. In 1227, Genghis Khan dies, considered the greatest conqueror in the history of mankind.
possibly. I mean, Alexander the Great's in there as well. But let's find out uh, who Genghis Khan was, his impact, uh, even being felt today, uh, as some would have it. Dr. Timothy May has joined us. He's an expert in this regard, professor of Central Eurasian History at the University of North Georgia, as well as author of the book, The Mongol Empire. Dr. May, good to have you here on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on the air, John. When I said he's uh, one of the greatest, he's considered to be one of the greatest conquerors in the history of mankind. Would that about aptly describe him? Uh, no, he's actually the greatest conqueror in the history of mankind. There are <laughs> empires such as uh, Chinggis Khan, and then you have little kingdoms like Alexander. That they're, they're, they're okay. Um, Chinggis Khan's empire was that he conquered uh, was the largest amount of territory under one person's uh, conquest, and his empire kept expanding. Uh, so that eventually you could basically put the continent of Africa in it. Well, at its peak, then, give us the parameters or a sense for the uh, breadth of this empire. Sure. Uh, Basically, it stretched from the Sea of Japan to the Carpathian Mountains or the Mediterranean Sea at its peak. Uh, What Chinggis Khan conquered was basically from Korea to about the Volga River um, and the Amudarya River, um, you know, basically where Uzbekistan is. Uh, the Mongols went into Afghanistan. They, they conquered it, but then they withdrew their forces. They didn't really feel the need to stay there, but they returned in 1230. Right, and he died in 1227, so the story goes. Although my understanding, yeah, nobody uh, exactly, there were no pictures or uh you know any kind of drawings or any even knowledge of where he's buried is uh, is that the case that is correct um he's buried somewhere in mongolia there's uh some belief that it's in inner what is now inner mongolia mm. in china uh, he died while uh, basically subduing um some rebels uh, the kingdom of Shisha in what is now uh, Inner Mongolia and Gangsu and Ningxia provinces of China. It had submitted to him in 1209. Uh, they were they paid tribute. The Mongols did not actually occupy it as long as the tribute was coming. But then they rebelled when he was off in Central Asia. They figured he's a thousand miles away. This is a good time, and his uh, local general and viceroy had died. So why not? And they found out that this was a big mistake. Uh, because he destroyed it, wiped it off the map. And that is why, you, unless you study the Mongol Empire, you don't hear of Shisha today. Mm. Well, this is the interesting thing when you talk about, you know, he's a thousand miles away and uh, people paying royalties or whatever, uh, tribute. How at the breadth of uh, this empire, the Mongols, and uh, we know where Mongolia is, uh, north of China, but... How did he manage to subdue or consolidate the various tribes and, uh, you know, just keep people under the yoke of a, a single, almost tyranny or dictatorship? Actually, it wasn't really a dictatorship. I mean, he certainly had uh, the final word on everything, but Chinggis Khan was a man who listened uh, to the advice of others. And his rise to power is a curious one because it doesn't really look like, you know, that he wanted to rule the world. I mean, if you look at his conquest, he was definitely not trying to do that. He, he stabilized Mongolia, brought it together. And then his campaigns are largely to keep other people from messing things up there. Um, because surrounding states like the Jin Empire, um, uh, 
Shisha, as well as the Karakitan Empire and what is now Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, would meddle in the affairs of the tribes of Mongolia. And uh, he's he's the one who created Mongolia. Before this, we have the Steppe Plateau up there and numerous tribes, um, you know, these groups, their names change over time. Basically, the dominant lineage or family will apply their name to it. So if you rose to power and took over a bunch of people, you'd be known as the Oakleys. Hmm. And, you know, we, we could have the Oakley Empire. Yeah. Um, and, and then uh, Genghis Khan comes along, and he slowly but surely unites the steppe, um, sometimes uh, simply reacting to people who become a little envious of his own abilities. Well, how did he become uh, so dominant? Was he ruthless in uh, how he conquered tribes and uh, different regions? Uh, How did he become so dominant? Well, at at first he wasn't. He actually got kicked out of Mongolia for about 10 years. He disappears from history, and we think he ends up in the Jin Empire in some capacity. We don't really know what he was doing there, but he comes back actually with Jin support, uh, Jin, the Jin Empire basically ruled northern China and what is now Manchuria. They were Manchurian of or, in origin. Hmm. And so they supported his comeback because he was going to be their man in Mongolia. And um, with their support, he's able to resume his place among the Mongols. But then uh, he defeats his enemies. And what he does that really cements his power is he eliminates the aristocracy of all these other tribes. Um, he, he learns they'll never accept him um, over one of their own. And, you know, the common people, they kind of ebb and flow with every tribe. So if you get defeated, you join. If you have a leader you don't like, you leave and go somewhere else. You basically vote with your your feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the cons are basically sort of elected. I mean, you're choosing from a small number of people. But you have to demonstrate your ability. And part of that is to uh, reward your followers, um, make sure the community is thriving and whatnot. And if you can't do that, you won't stay in power very long. Hmm. But he does. But the other thing he does is he eliminates all the other aristocracy. And his family then becomes the new aristocracy and the royal family. So there's really no one else to challenge him by the time he's done. There are a few people who flee, and then he hunts them down, and that will be one of his hallmarks. But he also builds up a a loyal following. Um, Some of them are commoners. A couple of his top generals were former slaves. He's a person who recognizes talented individuals and brings them in. And it doesn't matter who they are, where they're from, what was their standing in society. If you have talent, he'll find a use for you. And he's also a very charismatic guy. Hmm. So he's got all these uh, attributes, and of course, you know, he's a brilliant military as well as political strategist, uh, from what I'm hearing. I also heard a report, uh, somebody had said, genealogically speaking, uh, you can trace about one-sixth of the world's population back to his DNA, uh, his or his coterie of close associates. Any truth to that? Um, I, I'm always amazed how that number changes with everybody. Um, basically, what they believe is that um, maybe half of a percent of the world's male population could be descended from Genghis Khan. Um, we, we don't really know because we don't have his, G, uh, his DNA, 
Mm. But, you know, he he's a man who had at least six wives and a lot of concubines and cold Mongolian winters. Uh, so he definitely would uh, reproduce a lot. Then we know um, some of his sons had several offspring as well. Right. I've got to ask you, finally, uh, there's a turning point here in terms of his military prowess or capabilities. Uh, am I right or wrong to say it had to do with the development of the stirrup because so much of his military power was vested in guys on horseback and cavalry, and uh, which changed the nature of warfare effectively and uh, made it very easy to conquer any disparate tribes who hadn't yet developed this. Was that right? No, the stirrup had been around for centuries by this point. Hmm. Um, the, the stirrup has, had been in use for around the 300s, 400s. Hmm. Um, so by the 13th century, everybody's using it, um, in, including in Europe. Um, so it, it's a very common. But what he does is basically sort of revolutionizes step warfare. He's fighting other nomads. They've all been using the same tactics and things. But it's it's like, you know, whether you're playing soccer, hockey, basketball, or whatever, it's how you execute and then figuring out some new things hmm. um, to throw in there. And he he's able to do this. He comes up with some new tactics, new formations that kind of boggles people's minds. And like I said before, he he is open to new ideas from other people. He he does not like yes men, and he does not have a lot of hubris. Hmm. You know, he certainly is a, a person you don't want to get on the wrong side of. But you know, if he's wrong, he might be angry at first, but he'll listen to it and then he'll learn from his mistakes. Okay. And so you know, he's. He's always learning. He's o always open to new ideas, and he gives his commanders flexibility. Hmm. It's not a highly centralized system. Um, well, so, no, they, well, it's, it's things. It's fascinating to get you know a credible account of things. The best I had to go on previously was uh, a triumph of miscasting, where John Wayne was Genghis Khan. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever seen that movie, I mean, it's so bad, oh, it's yeah. almost it's good. Uh, yeah, here he was. Uh, he was considered to be tolerant of religions, Genghis Khan, but he killed forty million people by some estimates. Uh, that's the rough overview. But he died on this date. In 1227, uh, Dr. Timothy May, professor of Central Eurasian History at the University of North Georgia and author of the book, The Mongol Empire. Canada suffered its darkest day in its military history on this date 80 years ago at the Dieppe Raid, which was uh, ill-fated, 916 Canadians killed and more than 2,000 captured uh, and these are young men, understand, and uh, the idea that, you know, that they would feel they had to do their duty as members of the military. And they were looking for action. This is where some of the historians say, uh, you know, because of bad planning, really, uh, they were sent to an untimely death. Uh, but otherwise, they were anxious to get involved in uh, the situation in Europe at the time when the Germans held on to uh, the beachhead in France and... Uh, now we know the outcome, but what's really interesting is uh, the commemorations. There's one, uh, Mayor Tory laid a wreath earlier today, and then Dieppe Park tonight. There's going to be another commemoration. That's in East York, so named because of the raid. Uh, now, there's also uh, a great initiative done uh, by the uh, Juno Beach Center Association, 
And uh, Alex Fitzgerald Black is the exec director of said. Uh, it's a Canadian postcard campaign. Let's find out all about it as it relates to Dieppe. Alex, good to have you here on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Uh, so let's start by finding out uh, exactly what is the Canadian postcard campaign that you've launched. Yeah, so this actually um, gen- was generated from an exhibit we were doing overseas at our museum in France. We have an uh, exhibition honoring the 80th anniversary of the Dieppe Parade over there. And one of the things we wanted to do with that exhibition was to communicate with people so that they could understood the, understand the impact that this rate had across Canada. And so we started out with a map of uh, basically where the garrison headquarters of all the units were and what the casualties were that they took. But we decided we wanted to take it a step further. And basically what we did is we took um, about 800 of the 916, as you said, uh, names of Canadians who were killed during the raid. And we managed to get some volunteers and staff together to go through their service files and grab addresses from those service files, the address they would have used to sign up when they were volunteering to go overseas. We took those addresses, plugged them into a spreadsheet, and then compared them with um, basically Canada Post's online database of current addresses. And we tried to match them up where we could. And so through that effort, out of the 800 or so names that we had, we ended up with exactly 400 uh, uh, current addresses. And what we did is we created a postcard and sent it to each of those addresses with the name of the soldier who unfortunately passed away during the Dieppe raid, uh, but at some point lived in that address before. Wow, uh, that really brings it home. Now, uh, again, because, you know, it's roughly uh, half of the uh, number that you actually had sent out, but they actually uh, correlated to current addresses. Uh, Did you get any response from the current inhabitants? We've got a few responses from the current inhabitants, and some of them are you know, quite touched by the initiative. But even more so, we've gotten responses from the general public and from people um, who were loved ones of those uh, who either participated in the Dieppe Raid or perished during the Dieppe Raid, just so touched by the initiative, uh, making sure that you know, even 80 years on, we're still remembering this, uh, this dark day, as you said, off the top in Canadian military history. So when you send out postcards, uh, what is the nature of the postcard? So the, the, the postcards are two-sided, like many postcards. The front of the postcard includes a poster about our exhibition over in France. Uh, it actually features a, an image taken by uh, German war photographers after the raid. Many of the photos you see online today about, uh, about with the raid depicted were taken by German war photographers, for many for propaganda purposes. This image features um, the aftermath scene on the main beach at Dieppe. There's a Churchill tank abandoned in the background, barbed wire strewn across the kind of the, the mid-ground. And in the foreground, uh, basically a scene of uh, helmets, helmets that the Canadians who had surrendered um, and who had you know been leaving the beach uh, took off their heads probably at the direction of the German soldiers and, and placed on the ground and discarded uh, as they went into captivity. So that's the front side. The back side of the card um, essentially is unique to each individual postcard. Uh, it has some information about you know educational resources that you can uh, get to on our website at junobeach.org, but then it also notes the specific name uh, and fate of the soldier uh, who came from the address that the card is addressed to. I'm wondering, it's a long shot to be sure, but uh, any 
family members, you know, generations removed, still living in the houses that were occupied at one time by these soldiers who went to war? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there could be some. We haven't had any uh, instances of that, but certainly we've had in the same community um, uh, people reaching out and saying, you know, oh, I remember that. I remember the house uh, that, that, you know, my uncle, my grandfather, my maybe not my grandfathers, they weren't alive at the time, but certainly my uncle or my father, uh, you know, the house that we lived in or they lived in at the time. I don't know if it's even still there. It'd be interesting to go look. Um, and, and that sort of thing. So we do get those touching stories with people reaching out to us and telling us even more about these people because we have the service files that we can go through. We can glean some information, mm-hmm. but we can't speak to their character. We can't speak to you know how they interacted with their loved ones. And these uh, these relatives certainly can do that still, even though they may have been you know five, six, ten years old at the time. Yeah, because uh, the surviving members, of which there are just a, a few, if any, I guess maybe one or two, uh, are in their 90s now, mid-90s. I was really moved earlier today when I heard the mayor say that 204 of the soldiers that yeah. were killed were from Toronto. And uh, I've seen a map, the the regional or geographic locations of where these postcards have been sent. Uh, it represents a, a pretty f- uh, fair uh, length and breadth of the country, does it not? It, it certainly does, and Toronto was perhaps the hardest hit um, city uh, during the raid. Uh, there were uh, a number, oh, a couple of regiments uh, from the city, uh, the Royal Regiment of Canada, which suffered perhaps the worst losses at Blue Beach at Pui. Uh, there was also the Toronto Scottish Regiment that was involved, and in be- because Toronto is such a large city, a lot of the um, you know, some of the airmen, some of the uh, other uh, members of different army units were also from the city. And we had about 130 postcards of those kind of 204 or so that went to Toronto-based addresses. And it was, you know, we weren't surprised when we saw that, um, but it was still quite shocking to see just how many were concentrated in such a small geographic area. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I heard an account where uh, the Highlanders, when they went into battle, I guess there were still uh, bagpipes playing. And uh, there was, I mean, hard to imagine at the time. I mean, they didn't understand the carnage that they would be uh, facing. It certainly uh, came home in spades in a matter of 10 hours when uh, you're losing all kinds of members of your, your regiment. Uh, and only, I, I guess it was uh, 51 that were uh, evacuated to England at the time as well. I mean, the sense of uh, of the loss at the time, too, it was kind of a massage to make it not seem as horrific as it truly was. If you can give us a little historical background quickly on this, I guess because Mountbatten was in charge of the operation and he had people, Flax, who were doing PR uh, interference for him. It was sort of couched as a, a positive takeaway, was it not? Yes, I mean, the Combined Operations Headquarters, which was the, the organization that Mountbatten led, they basically had two PR plans going into the Dieppe raid. Option A was if the raid was a success, and that would indicate, you know, that would feature basically stories of bravery, and it would also feature, you know, all the objectives achieved. Option B was still featuring those stories of bravery, but also focusing on the lessons learned for the future invasion of Northwest Europe that, you know, would come down eventually in 1944, but we didn't know exactly when at the time. And interestingly enough, uh, they actually initiated the success campaign initially. And that really m- messed with people here in Canada because then they switched to the, uh, the failure uh, plan, the failure PR plan. And of course, they had to, you know, there's no hiding the fact that all these people have been killed, wounded or missing. And so you have articles at the time where 
it's talking about you know the objectives achieved and 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 talking about the successes of the raid and then you also have you know weeks later the crazy long casualty lists and and people started kind of sitting up and saying well something doesn't seem right here and so um absolutely yes the 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 public relations spin you know had an impact at the time and arguably and, and there are some that still argue that that the Dieppe raid um, you know, had some useful lessons for D-Day, but arguably that narrative around those lessons was begun as PR spin back in 1942. Yeah, I uh, couldn't mask the debacle after uh, people saw the clear light of the tragedy and uh, certainly generations removed too. now see it in a different uh, instant than they did at the time. <music> 1953, the CIA-assisted coup overthrew the government of Iran and uh, installed the Shah. And some are saying that this is really uh, the beginning of destabilization in the Middle East that saw the rise of terror and, of course, a lot of regimes that are inimical to the U.S. of A. or the West. Stephen Kinzer is a former New York Times correspondent as well as author of the book, All the Shah's Men, an American Coup and the Roots of Middle East Terror. So he knows intimately what it's all about. Let's uh, pick it up with Stephen Kinzer here on The Oka Show. Stephen, good to have you back with us. Good afternoon. Always good to be with you. So, Stephen, let's just start with uh, a synopsis, an overview. Uh, Maybe you can set the the backstory here on how the CIA got uh, was instrumental in orchestrating the overthrow of the government of Iran and bringing in the Shah and uh, all the rest that... uh, came about subsequent it's part of a big story that unfolded in the years after world war ii what happened was that during the war franklin roosevelt was making broadcasts around the world about uh, he was it was called why we fight he was giving explanations for why it was right to support the allied cause and his explanation was always the same we have to fight dictatorship we have to fight tyranny we have to allow people to rule themselves. He was, of course, talking about Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. But many people around the world thought by the time the war ended, he wasn't talking just about their country. He's talking about my country. So there was a big move in colonies and ex-colonies and countries that had been oppressed by big nations uh, to try to become independent and embody what President Roosevelt had been urging uh, democracy. That happened also in Iran. In the period right after World War II, democracy flourished in Iran in the late 40s and early 50s. But that created a problem. Since, it ha- since a democratic government was in power, it was natural that this government would have to respond to the concerns of most ordinary people, the concerns of voters. And in Iran... That meant one thing. We have to take control of our oil. Iran, even then, was sitting on an ocean of oil, but the entire oil industry was owned by a foreign company. So uh, the Iranians elected a prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, who was determined to take back Iranian oil and use it for Iran. But of course, that... Uh, intruded on some very powerful uh, and rich interests in Britain and the United States. The United States then uh, launched a a project, along with the British, to overthrow Mossadegh. And that happened. It succeeded. 
1953, uh, exactly on this date. We're, we're observing the anniversary today. Now, what happened in the long run? In the short run, it looked like a great outcome for America. We got rid of a guy we didn't like, Mossadegh, and we replaced him with a guy, the Shah, who would do everything we wanted. So it seemed like a win. But look what happened over the next years. The Shah ruled with increasing repression. Finally, in the late 1970s, he was overthrown. There emerged in his place this clique of wildly anti-American mullahs that have spent all these years trying to undermine American interests all over the world. So in the long run, like many American overthrows of foreign governments, this one doesn't seem so successful. Again, Stephen Kinzer is with us, former New York Times correspondent, author of the book, All the Shah's Men, an American Coup and the Roots of Middle East Terror. Uh, so the Shah was never accepted as the legitimate ruler of Iran then, was he? I think there were many people who were willing to give him a chance after he came back and was installed back on the peacock throne by the Americans. But he wound up turning the country into something like a vassal of the United States. And this is particularly sensitive in Iran. Do you go back the entire history of Iran, which is in Iran, Persia, is one of the oldest civilizations in the world. You'll see that they've had a constant problem with foreign intervention all the way back from the time Alexander the Great burned their capital. And then through the 19th century with British and Russian interests tearing Iran apart. So when the Shah became such a slavish ally of the United States and used his secret police uh, to torture and kill Iranians who challenged his regime, now that set off a chain of events that uh, ultimately led to the regime that we see now in Iran. And it's really an interesting comparison how Americans and Iranians look at U.S.-Iran relations. For Americans, I think uh, U.S.-Iran relations begins and ends with the hostage crisis. That's it. That was the huge moment in 1979-1980. But for the Iranians, that was just a little blip. And the real big event that shaped the relationship was the 1953 coup. So each side sees history differently, and that's one of the things that keeps the countries apart. Stephen, I'm curious now, the CIA orchestrated this, and British intelligence played a role as well in uh, getting rid of Mossadegh and putting the Shah on the peacock, peacock throne, as you say. Just in general, I mean, the CIA sort of gets uh, wrapped for, uh, you know, overthrowing certain regimes in Chile, Guatemala over the years. How do they manage to do that exactly? The period that I'm talking about in the early 50s, and that was also the period when the CIA was overthrowing the government of Guatemala, was a period when these newly emerging nationalist regimes were actually very innocent to the ways of the world. They had no idea of the power of the CIA. And I think uh, later on, it became more difficult for the CIA to carry out these operations. But uh, when I look back over these histories, I almost want to go back and tell someone like Mossadegh, let me explain to you what might be happening here. You're not understanding what the United States is and what the United States does. So I do think there was a lack of recognition on the part of the target government of how fierce 
the opposition would be, and the CIA took advantage of this. Interestingly enough, in the case of Iran, uh, as well as in Guatemala, the coup actually failed before it succeeded. Uh, Mossadegh was supposed to be arrested in the middle of the night, but he had gotten wind of the plot, and uh, the people that were supposed to arrest him were themselves arrested. So it seemed like the whole coup was over. And Mossadegh's foreign minister, who was quite militant, told him, you got to shoot those guys, the ones that tried to overthrow you. But Mossadegh was a very democratic person. He'd lived for years in Switzerland, and he wouldn't hear of anything like that. They said he released them, and uh, three days later, there was another coup that succeeded. So the CIA really, I guess, outsmarted those leaders in the early 1950s who were not really prepared for the kinds of tactics that the CIA was using against them. So uh, would this then have been like an object lesson for other regimes? I mean, is this also the root cause of a, a festering mistrust of America in certain places in the Middle East and uh, and beyond? There's no doubt that uh, these interventions leave a legacy of bitterness. Uh, they sometimes seem successful in the short run, as the one in Iran did. And Americans tend to forget them. In fact, when they first happen, they're always presented as local uprisings. And it's not until years later that information comes out that shows that the CIA promoted this. So by then, people have forgotten about it. Uh, and then I think uh, people in, in the foreign countries where these operations unfold have the opposite reaction. They don't forget at all. They, the, the memory of these operations festers and burns in their hearts and in their souls. You, you can see it coming out. And I think uh, it shows that the United States underestimated the staying power of nationalism, which uh, we thought we were crushing by overthrowing governments like Mossadegh in Iran. On this date... 1953, CIA-assisted coup overthrows the government of Iran, installs the Shah. We know where that went. Uh, it led to, of course, the uh, hostage crisis. And uh, now there's obviously a great antipathy between the United States and Iran and uh, the destabilization to a large extent of the Middle East as well. And uh, this is sort of the wellspring of it. As explained by Stephen Kinzer, former New York Times correspondent, author of the book, All the Shah's Men, An American Coup and the Roots of Middle East Terror. It was a fateful journey to Antarctica that Ernest Shackleton uh, attempted back in, well, it was the second decade of the previous century, and uh, it lives on in popular lore, uh, the stunning survival story of Shackleton and his crew on the endurance. But man, uh, Hellacious doesn't even begin to describe things. Let's find out, set this all into a proper historical context. Joining me on the line to do so is Nancy Keene, historian at the Harvard Business School. Her research focuses on crisis leadership and how leaders and their teams rise to the challenges of high-stakes situations, which describes Shackleton to a T. She's author of the book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Nancy, uh, with that preamble, I welcome you to The Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. What a pleasure to be here with you, John. Well, I thank you for that. Let's talk about Ernest Shackleton, because in the context, too, of leadership skills, and he was indefatigable in this case with the Endurance and her crew, uh, I'm reading some of the accounts. 
truly, truly, I mean, daunting stuff. Uh, so maybe set the table for us uh, how the Shackleton crew and, and Endurance were headed to Antarctica and uh, how they got stuck in the sea ice and uh, tried to, you know, remove themselves and ultimately ended up on Elephant's Island. And it was a case of survival. Set the table. So it's an extraordinary story. It's about making a leader making himself capable of 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 achieving the impossible, right? Mm. And and it begin the story begins broad brushstrokes for listeners that may not know it, uh, and for those fans who do know it and and understand its grip. Um, the Shackleton sets out just as World War One breaks out with a crew of twenty seven men from England. They're going to go to Antarctica. They're going to be the first team of men to cross the continent, the entire continent, and you know pick up scientific uh, specimens as they go, and basically be famous for that first. The, the continent, had, the pole, had been discovered in nineteen eleven. So this is just four years four years later. So World War One breaks out. They sail all the way to the coast of Antarctica. They can see the coast. They're sailing along the coast, getting ready. This is on the South American side of the continent, getting ready to sail in to make base camp. And overnight, this is January 1915, the ice locks the ship like a vice. Icebergs literally surround it and lock it. And for the next about nine months, the ship and the 27-men crew and Shackleton, 28 men, just drift with the tides in the very South Atlantic. And and finally, at the end of our summer, the, the winter in the Southern Hemisphere, this is August 1915, the ice begins to crush the ship. And Shackleton realizes he's got to get all the men off the ship and start putting up the tents and save the lifeboats and the canned goods. And that's what they do. Mm. And now they're on the floating iceberg in, a, in tents because the ship is destroyed and sunk by the late fall of 1915. And they just live on this floating iceberg. And Shackleton's job now is to keep the men from tearing each other apart or Hmm. from succumbing to ennui and despair that can obviously turn into life-threatening discord and to keep enough seal and penguin meat that the men don't die of starvation. And so he's committed to doing that and somehow manages to keep the men believing they will get home alive. This is the astounding, the most astounding feat of all this. And then... By early 1916, the ice is starting to break up. The men jump in the lifeboats. They're still deep in the South Atlantic, way, way far from the Mm -hmm. coast of Antarctica. And they sail north, pitching, rowing, sail north along what today we would call the western edge of the archipelago of islands that stretches up. Mm-hmm. To um, stretches up from Antarctica, and they arrive at Elephant Island. This is April of 1916. They've been out of reach of civilization since, basically, since December of 1915. No one knows where they, not, not 1914, 16 mm-hmm. months, no one knows they're alive. And Shackleton immediately says, I've got to do something where no one's going to find us on this deserted island. Right. So he and five other men set sail, Put it, rig up a sail and set sail from Elephant Island. They have to go east because west west winds will keep them from going west. So they sail northeast to a little island which they had stopped at on the journey down, called South Georgia. And there's mm-hmm. a whaling station there, and there's a telegraph. Hmm. And after an arduous, arduous, extraordinary sea journey, never been successfully replicated. In this rowboat, 26 feet long, they get to the whaling station, 
And Shackleton then spends almost four months trying to get through the icebergs now separating him at, at South Georgia to Elephant Island. And on August 30th, we're speaking on August 30th, 1916, he finally gets a little tugboat capable of getting through to the remaining men on Elephant Island, and he rescues them this day in 1916. That's this date in history with Nancy Keene, historian at the Harvard Business School. How many men did he rescue from Elephant's Island? He rescued 22. So there were 28 originally. Mm. And, and six, and there were six that went, three basic troublemakers they didn't want to leave on the <laughs> island while he went for help, mm. and three good guys, Shackleton and two really good sailors, they went, to, they went off to, to South Georgia. So 22 remained. All peace was kept there. The men were kept alive by Shackleton's second-in-command, a man named Frank Wilde. And so all the men went home alive after wow. this astounding journey. Well, this speaks to uh, courage and the indefatigable human spirit and uh, crisis leadership, as you point out as well. You know, something else that was interesting, the supplies that they had brought, I guess they never had anticipated that this would be uh, something that they might have to endure. Uh, I think I read where they had like 68 dogs and a cat originally yep. on the ship. Yeah. And they had sixty-eight. They had they had dogs that were supposed to that were supposed to pull the sleds, and right. a cat that was a stowaway. Mm. Um, and eventually, they shot in, in early nineteen sixteen. They shot the dogs because they couldn't keep them alive. The cat mm. had died, and they ate the dog meat, and they had to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, again, through all that, Shackleton's got this focus on: I have to manage the practical details, and I have to manage the men's morale. That's so important in a crisis. You're not just managing all this uncertainty and this, you know, this volatility. You're also managing how people perceive themselves and whether they feel grounded enough to, to try and help get out of the crisis. And so there's a huge element of what we would call emotional intelligence involved in crisis leadership. And Shackleton, in my book, gets an A-plus for that. Can that be taught or is that an innate thing? Absolutely can be taught. I think Shackleton learned a lot. He had been to the Antarctic twice before, with, mm. in, and in each case had kind of honed his skills, once under a lousy captain, and once under a very, very difficult journey in which he and his men almost died, that he was in charge of. And he learned a great deal about what works and what doesn't work in terms of using your emotional awareness to kind of keep men's morale functioning, credibly hopeful, but also also very brutally honest about the challenges they faced. And he kept that balance in his men all through that time, John. Yeah, that's uh, the impressive thing, as well as his second-in-command, uh, who was back on Elephant's Island while he was out there uh, sort of sea-locked uh, on South Georgia Island for four months. He didn't come back, but uh, everything was tickety-boo when he returned. It's kind of like, uh, by contrast, if you've seen uh, you know Moses coming down from the mountain when it was Charlton Heston, and uh, I guess, you know, the 40 days he had spent up there, everything went awry, uh, and it was Edward G. Robinson. Where's your Messiah now? See, remember exactly. that? Well, but in scene? the crisis, it's exceptionally important, and Shackleton understood this because it could be a crisis in the Antarctic because conditions are so uncertain and they're so deadly if they get uncertain. He always understood you hire for attitude and you train for skill. So he knew wild. They had, they had gone to Antarctica before, so he knew what he was getting in that man, and he knew he could trust Wilde to keep the peace and keep the morale strong while he left them for however long as he sailed off to South Georgia. 
You know, I'm always impressed by these, uh, especially when it predates a lot of mass communication or any kind of communication. They had the telegraph station, as you say, the Norwegian, I guess, sailing outpost on, uh, outpost on South Georgia Island where he finally made it to, and uh, that might have helped to a certain extent. Do you remember the story of Captain Bly after the mutiny on the bounty, and he made his way through the Straits of Malacca like it was three or 4,000 miles, again in a rowboat with a few of the others who were uh, sent, you know, uh, pretty much to their deaths. Uh, it was assumed when the bounty was mutinied by Fletcher Christian. But Bly made his way back uh, to, I guess, the Dutch East Indies at the time. Uh, did he have leadership? I mean, he was a, a mariner of the First Order, obviously. Absolutely. And I don't think you can do something like that. I don't know the story intimately, but I don't think you can do something like that without literally making, if you don't have the leadership skills as you enter this, really good, courageous leaders figure out how to raise the level of their game in all that exigency. Right. Uh, and that's what it is. By the way, uh, the in, uh, the endurance uh, that uh, they had to scuttle or the sea actually claimed, what happened? I mean, uh, it was found just fairly recently, wasn't it? Yeah, this is such a well, this is such an amazing story. It's so Shackletonian, like again, the impossible happens. So, at the very end of March in this year, or maybe the middle of March, excuse me, uh, an expedition that had been looking for the endurance. There's been a number of them found it, found it at the bottom, if you will, of the Weedle Sea, which is what that that part of South, the South Atlantic is 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 called. And interestingly enough, Worsley, um, Frank Worsley, who had been Shackleton's uh, navigator and was brilliant had listed the coordinates of where the ship sank so well that the, sh the actual wreck, which was still, you could still see if your listeners remember the pictures of this or if they decide to Google the discovery of the endurance at the bottom of the sea, it it's so well preserved in that cold water that you can see the, endur the name of the endurance just you know clear as day in all that water. Um, they found it just a few, core, uh, just a, um, like a, a mile and a half or two miles off in the sea from where Worsley put it down in terms of his coordinates in November, middle of November, 1915. Yeah, uh, down 10,000 feet. 10,000 uh, feet, and not, they didn't touch it. They just right. took pictures with, with underwater cameras of it, but they, 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 they left it right there in the deep. What a fascinating story, and uh, I really love your passion in relating it. Nancy Keene, historian at the Harvard Business School, and again, her research focuses on crisis leadership and how leaders and their teams rise to the challenges of high-stakes situations. She's the author of the book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. 